Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government uh, for this event on is there a case for renationalising utilities. Labour's proposal in their manifesto to renationalise large parts of the economy from broadband to energy to water is one of the ways in which they're offering a radically different vision for how the state should operate and how the economy should operate. But it isn't just Labour who have started talking about some of the problems in the regulated markets. Theresa May also identified what she called broken markets and started to move in the direction of addressing some of these issues through policies such as the price cap. So I think it's very timely for us to be here ahead of the election to think about what are the problems in the regulated markets at the moment and is nationalisation the answer to those issues. Um, before we uh, kick off with the panel, um, just a few housekeeping notes. Um, there are no fire alarms planned for today, so if you do hear the fire alarm go, please do uh, exit the building um, through this door and down the stairs you came up. Uh, my colleagues can show you out. Um, this event uh, is being live streamed and tweeted using the hashtag, hashtag IFG election 2019. So please do join in if that, you're that way inclined or do in, remain engaged with the activity here if you would prefer. Um, and this event is on the record and the video uh, will be available online uh, afterwards if you would like to replay the excitement. Um, I'm really delighted today to be joined um, by three excellent panellists to discuss this issue. Uh, on my left we have Sharon Darcy who is the director of the think tank um, on charity sustainability first. Um, she's also a trustee of WITCH and a long-standing board member of Consumer Futures. Um, she's also uh, had three decades working in and advising the regulated sector um, and so really is very expertly placed to help us think about this question. On my right we have James Meadway who was formerly an advisor to John McDonnell. Um, he is an economist and has published widely on democratic ownership, environmental economics, automation and the digital economy um, and is currently taking a break um, from being a special advisor or I'm not sure if he's taking a break or if he's going back, um, but he's writing a book on the British economy after the 2008 um, crisis, but has very kindly joined us here today to talk about Labour's um, position on renationalising these industries. And finally, we have Giles Wilkes, who is now a senior <coughs> fellow here at uh, the Institute for Government. Um, he's also a former colleague of mine from the FT, so um, it's a pleasure to work with him again. Um, and until the summer, was a special advisor to Theresa May, um, so he's going to... Uh, also give a view on what the issues are here and the alternatives to renationalisation. So, Sharon, let me start with you. Um, so, can you just give us a bit of an <coughs> overview of what are the issues facing the regulated sector and perhaps some of the future challenges, not only the, the issues that we already know exist? Um, very happy to. Uh, just before we get going, I'm no longer a, a trustee of WEEK, oh, so just to, just to clear that <laughs> up. Um, I stepped down in the interest of sustainability. Um, Sustainability First, you've probably not heard of us. Uh, we're a tiny think tank and charity, but we're specifically focused on UK utilities. So this is an area that we spend a lot of time thinking about. And we're about halfway through a major project called Fair for the Future, which is developing a sustainable license to operate the utilities sector. So if anybody wants a copy of our straw man, here it is. It's designed to be sort of shot down and toughened up with some discussion. But the work that we've done with utilities over the years has really showed us that utilities need to deliver not only social and political fairness, but they need to deliver environmental fairness. And nationalisation really addresses many of the social and political concerns that people have with the sectors, 
but not necessarily their environmental concerns. And the trick is to balance social, political and environmental outcomes in these sectors. And there's some unique features of utilities that are important to remember. So first off, they're not all the same. They're, there's massive amounts of difference in the utilities sectors. And the difference is largely between monopolistic bits of companies um, and competitive bits. But we all know trying to get competition to work for essential services can be really difficult. They're also essential services, and that means that people not only are interested in affordability, but continuity of supply. When the lights go down um, and, and the water bursts, nobody's happy. So that's a real issue. And they're parts of critical national infrastructure, so we're absolutely dependent on them. So there's always going to be more political interest in this sphere. And they're long-term businesses. So the decisions that are made today, particularly for the monopoly bits of the business, will have implications for decades to come. And that applies not only to pipes and wires, but also to resources, to natural resources. Now, these sectors face massive disruption. It's not just the social disruption and concerns around democratic deficits that have led to the nationalisation proposals. They're also going to face a key role in meeting the challenges of the climate emergency. And that's not just in terms of energy companies reducing carbon emissions, but it's all utilities adapting to climate change so that we can get resilient services. So that's a really fundamental point. And I think there's a, the other point that we'd make is there's a plurality of interests here. The interests of all consumers are not the same. That was a fundamental mistake, I think, of privatisation, that there was such a thing as an average consumer. Some people really struggle to pay their bills. Probably not anyone in this room, but if you're struggling to pay your bills, you're going to have a very different perspective on utilities. Some people don't see utilities as a sort of commercial one-off transactional relationship, but see it as, a, as something that affects their community. And some people rightly see it as a citizen's issue. And when you look to the climate emergency, deciding who pays for net zero and when is a real issue. We can't let discussions around nationalisation, even though they might deliver some social and political benefits, derail us, derailing us um, from the needs to meet sort of net zero by 2050 or before. So I think in summary, there's a real need to balance different interests when you come to think about utility service provision going forward. Balance how you share risk and reward fairly between different actors. So that's between different customers today, between people within generations and between generations. The challenges won't go away after the election. So if we get another Conservative government or a hung parliament and people think that they've dodged the nationalisation bullet, that will be a real issue because social inequality is there in our society and the climate emergency is real. So policy makers, regulators, companies and people, so that's all of us as citizens but also consumers, need to come together to think about what meaningful accountability looks like for essential services to get the right outcomes, not just for today but for tomorrow as well. Great, thank you very much. James, let me come to you next. What, what's your take on how privatisation has worked and why is renationalisation the answer? Okay, um, and thanks for the opportunity to speak. Uh, I'll just want to say a few brief words about what Labour's doing with its uh, public ownership and the, and the wider ownership programme. And, and I think some of that is, is putting in a, a context, which is in two parts. One, one is the political context. You know, on, there's quite a lot of, of sort of 
fairly wild talk about what Labour is proposing to do in general. Uh, not, not all of it very helpful, frankly. That if you look, sit and look at the manifesto, this is a proposal to basically, over a period of time, get Britain from where it is now as a fairly low spending, rather small state relative to other developed economies society to something a bit more like actually slightly under Germany or Sweden or something similar. So in terms of where we want to get to, what the manifesto lays out, it's not a particularly uh, radical, you know, new dramatic thing compared to uh, comparable economies, certainly in, in Northern Europe. It does represent a change in the, uh, the, the way we think about uh, economics in Britain, the way that economic governance has, has worked really for the last, certainly for the last 10 years, but really you're talking 40 odd years now. And that I think is part, part of the context here, that we're doing something, we want to do something that is moving where we are now from what I would say is a, is a succession of failures on the economy and a wider society and, uh, and a political economy set up that's probably increasingly unable to deal with some of the challenges that we're now facing, in which climate change uh, and the environmental breakdown in general is, is the most pressing. But moving out of that and more towards something that is a, a sort of recognisable social democratic Northern European setting. In other words, you, it's not really a campaign slogan. I don't suggest we use this for, for the last uh, week or so, but this is, this is make Britain normal again. This is moving us from somewhere that is an exception, it's an exception to have privatised water. It is an exception to have the extent of privatisation that we've seen in Britain to something that's recognisably like other, uh, and I would argue on a lot of measures, on most measures, better for performing uh, similar economies elsewhere in the world, most notably in Europe. So that's the kind of the broader case there. It's worth saying, of course, that nationalisation, renationalisation of uh, utilities in particular, also throwing in rail and the Royal Mail potentially, is popular and has been politically popular for a long period of time. Uh, that This only really became apparent perhaps in the 2017 election when you know, after the draft of the Labour manifesto was leaked and it contained these proposals to bring back into public ownership uh, the utilities, the mail, that kind of thing. It was leaked presumably with the intention of being very uh, destructive for, for Labour's chances. It actually turned out that these things are actually quite widely supported. And if you dig out the opinion polls, and you can do this over a long period of time, and it works whether somebody's a Labour supporter, a Conservative supporter, supports another party, voted leave, voted remain, you find a consistent level of very high public support for bringing uh, utilities back into public ownership. And that reflects a real experience. That reflects a real experience of privatisation over the last 30 years or so. People aren't doing this because of some deeply held, not on the scale, not on the kind of, I'm absolutely certain there are some people out there who just want to nationalise things because they want things nationalised. I'm pretty certain that's a, that's a chunk of, of, of Labour support because they think it's a good idea and they think that's a good thing in itself. But to have that level of support reflects the actual experience of privatisation in Britain over the last 30 years or so, which is a succession, and, and this was touched on, which is a succession of seeing increases in the prices paid for water, for rail fares very dramatically. You know, rail fares have gone up what, uh, two times, um, uh, doubled or so in, in, in the last 10 years, but certainly relative to, to wages over that period of time. So exceptional levels of what appear to be very, very rapid uh, increases in the prices you pay for some of these essentials, and at the same time a perception and I think largely a correct perception that these companies are not being run with the best interests of consumers at heart, but actually there is quite a decent kind of financial racket out of the back of these things if you take water companies over the last 10 years, 18.3 billion pounds in dividends, uh, rather 18.3 billion pounds in profits, 18.1 billion pounds in dividends over the same period of time. This is clearly not a very high rate of retained earnings, clearly not a very high rate of investment over a long period of time, which is why, of course, you run into some of the 
uh, well-publicised issues around leaks, around problems with sewage leaks in particular, uh, around problems with investment in water industry. And water, if memory serves, comes out as the one that is the single most popular candidate, bar only railways, uh, for renationalisation. In other words, the popularity of these things reflects a lived experience of the last 20 or 30 years. It fits into, I would say, and I think this is the really broad context, of uh, seeing a political economy, a, a sort of a long... You know, Andrew Fisher, uh, now Jeremy's um, lead for, for policy over in the Labour Party, called it a failed experiment, and that's one way to think about it, perhaps. It's quite striking. Uh, if you dig out, uh, I was going to say Norman Lamont, I'm, of course, thinking of, of one of his predecessors, uh, Nigel Lawson's uh, memoirs, when he talks about, you know, we didn't have any evidence for this at the time. We were doing something brave and untested. We were doing something quite new and radical when we introduced parts of the privatisation programme. We didn't know whether this was going to work. Well, 30 years down the line, we can see some of the results. And it fits into a wider pattern of economic governance where you have, right the way through, how this country is run, how it's governed, how its institutions function, continually a low rate of investment relative to other OECD countries, a low rate of productivity, certainly over the last 10 years or so, with the result that you also get uh, a low rate of real wage growth, and I think uh, a side product of uh, you know, spectacular reliance, certainly in 2008 with elements of it reappearing, on a form of debt-led growth, and I think a spectacular level of regional inequality. That you end up with a form of economic governance, of which privatisation is a part, where the government says this is all hands-off, this is, uh, you know, create level playing fields everywhere, allow as far as possible free markets or regulated markets with notably uh, by OECD standards uh, like touch regulation in those uh, utilities markets. You allow this to happen, you get better results. 30 years down the line, I think we're seeing the public response to that and that's partly what's driving some of the, the popularity and the call for and the demand for nationalisation of those utilities. Now, will this work? I think the context here is what you want to get to afterwards. I think there's two parts. One, Labour has put some effort into saying, well, what were the problems with previous forms of uh, public utility ownership? And some of those critiques that you see, particularly from the 60s into the 70s onwards, around faceless bureaucracies, around decisions being taken, that are a long way from uh, people on the ground and an understanding of why those decisions are being taken. Now, that critique moves quite easily into thinking about why, are we, uh, why do we have very large corporations that also make decisions that seem a long way from us on the ground. The, 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 it's, it's this dreadful overused phrase now, but the idea of taking back control is something that people respond to clearly, and it's something that expresses a felt need that you have large faceless bureaucracies in one form or another that are a long way from uh, where people live, from decisions they want to see to being taken about their lives. How can you bring some of that back into, the, into their lives and into meaningful forms of democracy and control? And some of that, I think, is looking into how do you have boards of workers and consumers and other people uh, meaningfully able to set... Uh, set governance and set management for uh, the public utilities and, and like I said uh, I think the Labour Party has in fairness put some effort and put an awful lot of time into thinking about how those models work drawing on experience of remunicipalisation re particularly water companies uh, in, in, other parts of, in other parts of Europe over the last few years that these are new models of public ownership that this isn't and shouldn't be a reproduction of uh, previous models of ownership, which were very heavily centralised, the Morrisonian thing. You have a few civil servants, they set the targets, they set what uh, the company should be doing, and that's just the thing, and it rumbles on, and to hell with the consequences sometimes, that you're going to do something rather better than that. In the case of decarbonisation, I think the point is very well taken here, that what you don't want is 
a change in ownership that we think will be popular, that we think responds exactly, as you say, to this call for a sort of greater democracy in life, a call for more social justice in people's lives. You don't want that to intrude on uh, the climate change targets you're setting. And that, I think, is where the program for changes in energy ownership is, is probably the most interesting, because it envisages uh, uh, forms, different forms and different levels, and a sort of hierarchy of different forms of public ownership, whether it's local councils, local authorities providing some forms of electricity generation, whether it's, we'll do, whether it's community ownership uh, of uh, things like wind farms, as you see, for instance, in, 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 uh, in Germany and in Denmark, that if you have a multiplicity of different ways of owning resources and assets that are necessary for the decarbonisation process, this can be used to accelerate the process of decarbonisation, uh, particularly in energy supply. So you package all that up, and I think in conclusion what you've got is, it's a change in direction. It's a change in direction, I'd say, to something recognisably more like what you'd have perhaps in the rest of Northern Europe. I think if we do it right, it can address some of the, the challenges raised there, but I think it's, it's correct to, to identify those as challenges going forward. Thank you. Thank you. That was 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> Charles, so do you agree with James's diagnosis of what the problems are and well, is nationalisation the answer to this? A few thoughts. I was brought in by Theresa May in the beginning of January 2017 and consumer policy was part of the brief. And I think by then Labour had already, even before the manifesto that was such a game changer in 2017, they had already helped to set the weather in this area to the degree that it surprised the Conservative-led governments that had gone in before, in that there was disquiet amongst people that competition, if this is what competition delivers for me, it's not delivering what I want. I think at, the, at that time, certainly, the biggest sore point was energy, where from about um, 10 years before, they had gone from about six, big six um, energy companies to something like 70, and yet the range of prices that people were experiencing and the consumer outcomes were quite appalling. And I can say I volunteered myself as the consumer guinea pig over this period. I found myself switching and changing and trying out new companies all the time, and some of the experiences were awful. And you had the interesting experience for me of listening in cabinet committees while supposedly quite right-wing conservative ministers argued about why the market wasn't working or was working or what's an acceptable spread, where should we be saying caveat emptor, where is it down to the consumer, where should consumers not be expected to be thinking like sharp-eyed traders to get a decent price. It was almost a moral question, like why should I be having to spend my Sunday evenings checking that I'm not being ripped off on my energy. And so credit to Labour, starting under Ed Miliband, I would say, 2013 with the price freeze that had a, was a shockwave through the system and led to a CMA report and investigations of price capping and so forth, and inevitably is one of the reasons that the Conservatives had in 2017 a price cap in their manifesto. Now, it was a classic example of where the, a pro-market party is in a really difficult spot, acknowledging that there are difficulties, but saying, nevertheless, market mechanisms are still the answer. And this is, regardless of what happens in a week's time or so, going to remain the case for the British political scene, that people realised that we, had, we were innovators back in the 80s in privatising and introducing market forces to a, a great many different traditionally state-owned areas. And um, there is a chance for a refresh now. Now, Labour has set the terms of the debate saying it's just not working. There are some very interesting papers they were producing before this electoral season kicked off, which look quite sort of nuanced at this, where they said, in effect, we know that natural monopolies need regulation. You know, this is Econ 101. We all learn this when we are 
at university, but it's just been a game of cat and mouse. We can't seem to win it. Wouldn't it be easier if we just internalised everything? And I thought, well, this is quite an interesting area to go. There's possibility of objective analysis here because we can see that certain characteristics are not appropriate for private ownership, like national defence. You have to be one of the more stark-raving libertarians to think that's something we should all just get your own gun and look out for yourself. And likewise, some things are just not right for public ownership. I don't think most people think that the whole housing stock should be publicly owned or, or food delivery or so forth, although no doubt you'll have some people in that space. So in other words, there are objective criteria that we ought to be able to judge the policy against. This is the sort of comfortable area a centrist dad like me wants it to be in. And for example, I mean, sometimes profit, I know one of the key arguments that Labour were making is that profit sometimes feels like a deadweight cost. We can borrow it. 1%, 0% real, whatever it is currently in the gilt market, and yet we're seeming to need to remunerate private capital higher. Is that not something we can spend better? That's one of the classic examples. Another one is um, that the state is better at internalising certain very, very important externalities, which I think is a, is a kind of geeky way to say what you were saying. Classic example being environmental change, but the need for everybody to have clean water and clean air, the need for everyone to have broadband. The state is going to be better at that. This is one of the assertions that's behind it. And also, um, and also effectively, the private incentives will inevitably go wrong. Somewhere or other, you will find someone wanting to invest less than normal, wanting to find some clever financial structure instead of doing the right thing by the consumer. And it's true. This is what we did see. I would say my experience in the energy market at the supply end was if you don't have a really good working um, experience with the consumer and consumers critically thinking like they're in a market, which I think is another really excellent point you made, if the consumer's acting like they're in a state-provided position but... Um, in fact, there's a market going on there, the market mechanisms might push towards some perverse incentives, like the classic one is seek out the most disengaged customer you can, get them in on a low deal, ramp them up later. And this is why I think the price cap has actually worked, despite a lot of the microeconomic theory saying price caps should not work. However, um, where I question it, and this is where I think there is a great degree of experimentation, let's say, in the labour view is the idea that ownership solves all of these incredibly difficult dilemmas. Uh, a good example, I would say, is following on the price cap. Part of the justification of the price cap, the CMA's own figures, was that prices were overall about one and a half billion too high. Now, that was not all profit. The profits of the retail energy sector were nothing like one and a half billion. Some of this is inefficiency. And having a price cap on there forced people in the industry for reasons I still can't understand, to adopt cost savings that they were not otherwise doing. We saw shortly afterwards Centrica making an announcement, for example, of three or 4,000 job losses. Now, that's 200 million or so, is my guess, and that would have gone straight to consumers, 40 or 50 pounds off the bill. It enables, I'm suspecting, I haven't spoken to Centrica, them to make that price cap work. That's the sort of thing that's extremely difficult to do if you're a state-owned company, particularly if you've made statements in your manifesto that you're going to also protect the workforce and do all of these difficult things. You suspect that some of the reasons we sometimes want to outsource things to the private sector is the private sector incentives to find the most efficient way to deliver a service will not be present in the public sector. It's extremely difficult. You will have politics instead. And just to remind you of all the ambitious things that ownership is meant to achieve, and I'm just checking my watch so I think it's hold off for my 30 seconds. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's, it's a very inspiring document to a certain degree, but uh, on the case of rail, uh, it will steer network planning and investments, coordinate mainline upgrades, do a full rolling program of electrification. There, it will ensure continuity of skills, jobs, and supply chain. It will introduce a long-term investment plan, including cross-rail for the north. 
It will take full account of the environmental impacts of different route options. Um, it's incredible the number of different trade-offs that somehow are going to need to be managed within, and I appreciate all the points about cooperatives and different modes of ownership, but ultimately, and this is the thing that the Williams Review is trying to look at for a new system of franchising, there are incredibly difficult trade-offs to be taken just within the railway system. And the idea that you solve these by migrating them into one big ownership um, structure is, I think, optimistic. It means it goes within an even more complicated and opaque bureaucracy. And often it's easier to see things when it's relationships outside. The final point where I would um, take some issue with what James seems to have said, that people's lived experience Im implicitly is that things were better when they were nationalised and not so much now. Now, to take... I mean, I've, got, I've put, looked up some of the figures, and I'm sure some of these might be disputed, but they're from Ofwad. Um, it's true that prices for water went up quite sharply from privatisation to around 2009. But for the last 10 years, they're down in real terms. So literally, bills remaining absolutely the same or falling. And in the meantime, in terms of actual delivery, I understand quite when people, the media, will focus on current leakages and so forth. But here's some of the figures. In 1990 to 95, properties at risk of low pressure, 1.3%, now 0.01%. Uh, properties sub subject to unplanned supply interruptions, that's precisely what a householder will worry about. 0.33% now, 0.06%. Um, subject to hose pipe bans, 14% down to zero. And we know that the summers have got more difficult. I think the idea that it's impossible to get the private sector to do the decent thing under regulation, and we haven't discussed regulation enough, I appreciate, I do not think the record shows that. So if, if I was to choose between the method of taking a couple of hundred billion pounds of assets in and then hoping that our management or our innovative ownership structures will fix it, or having another proper look at regulation, I still think a proper look at regulation is the easiest way forward. Thank you. Sharon, let me come to you, perhaps. Um, so James mentioned the international examples, that actually the UK is the outlier in some of these areas. Could you say a little bit about, is that the case, what, what, what should we learn from other countries? Well, I think the problem is when you compare utilities in the UK with other countries, you also have to accept that the social welfare arrangements and the size of the state and what the state does in other countries also differs. So depending on the benefit system, the support system, what a utility company needs to do will change. So it's not a like-for-like -like comparison. But I think... The, the point's very well made that the water sector in the UK is, does stand outside most other water service companies uh, and most other arrangements for water provision in the rest of the world. But my concern in all this discussion is we're looking backwards at the past. We're trying to uh, develop solutions for the future, but in a rear-view mirror. We really need to understand that the challenges that utilities in particular are going to face are going to be very different in the future. They're going to be different because of climate change, as I've said, but they're also going to be different because of technology. And nobody's talked about tech yet. But technology and AI and digitization are completely changing the name of the game in terms of innovation that businesses are going through, possibilities of people doing things for themselves. And I think that's where some of the Labour proposals um, of decentralisation are quite good because they're saying, yes, with renewable energy, um, with uh, PV, being able to generate at home, being able to store your energy at home, that creates the opportunity for a whole new range of different um, ways of producing energy, saving energy, trading energy that we didn't have before. 
So I think when we look to the future, we need to say, how can we make the most of those technological opportunities, but to do it in a fair way where people don't feel they're being ripped off for the monopolistic bit of the services, which is the problem we've had in the past. And I think there are examples from other countries, so from Germany, for example, about how you can change sort of board governance, corporate <coughs> governance, to get different ranges of people to have a say in how decisions are made. But it is very difficult to lift and shift from other countries just because of the different social um, welfare provisions that different states have. Great. James, I want to give you a chance to come back on some of the critiques that um, Giles raised. Perhaps I can throw in one of my own, given it's something that we do worry about here at the Institute for Government, is actually the sheer implementational challenge of bringing back such large chunks into the public sector and the concern that perhaps the public sector doesn't have the capacity um, or the, cap the sort of expertise anymore to do this. Um, so. I think that's, um, yeah, and sort of two parts to that. What, one, is, one is the... One is taking seriously the issue of, of democratising ownership, and it's, it's saying that if there are challenges to implementation, the, the people who know best how to deal with challenges to implementation are the people already very close to doing the implementation, right? So you say, if we want different structures for how things are in public ownership, if we want to introduce forms of democracy at work, if we want to have, and I think this is a, a key to it actually, is, is, is getting better outcomes from a lot of these things, is transparency in various different ways. So it's transparency of governance, transparency of ownership, transparency of decision making, then that I think starts to get you some distance towards, towards the implementation uh, end of, uh, you know, how you actually make this happen, how you get these, these companies to operate in the way that people can see and you can actually, it, it does make some difference to people's lives. But I think it also ties into this, this very, very important point about, well, this has to be forward-looking. Because I think if we, if we take something like, I mean, water, water does stick out, I might be slightly off-piece in this one, but I think it's about right. Water does stick out as one where, yeah, historically, it is relatively easy to, to supply water in a relatively stable environment like we have in Britain, and this is something that doesn't pose very significant challenges for a company that does it. So over time, if you say, okay, it was once done in the public sector, now we move it to the private sector, and the private sector can carry on doing it with, a, you know, with, with some issues that we've discussed, but basically the, the minimum standard you expect is kind of met, and you do get that minimum standard, and somebody makes a profit, and it's not absolutely disastrous. It strikes me if over time we're looking in a world where the environment isn't that stable, where there are pressures, new pressures, on water supply, where there are pressures of flooding, pressures of environmental damage. Really, it's a problem of adaptation to climate change at this point, rather than mitigation in some sense. Then that is something that I'm not so convinced the private sector is, is going to be particularly good at, and particularly not a, a low regulation private sector of the kind we have, have, that we have here. That if we say there is a minimum standard that the water companies must achieve, that looks harder uh, once you have quite an unstable environment, once you have uh, a private company that, that has to try and think about these things. So, so that, I think, would be one thing you have to, that we ought to factor in more into our thinking about climate change. It's not just the sort of, what do we do to reduce our carbon emissions, our greenhouse gas emissions. It's also, what are we actually going to do in a world where the environment suddenly isn't quite as stable as we thought it was? Giles, so we, there's been a lot of debate in the election campaign so far about Labour's proposals for this, mm. but what have the Conservatives said about this? What would we expect a Conservative government do to tackle these issues? Mostly, uh, as we were discussing at a great manifesto event last week, the Conservatives remained almost silent on anything that might remotely cause any kind of media risk. So, so I was um, quite staggered to see in the Conservative manifesto commitment to keep this energy price cap, which I'd actually sworn blind, I'd promised to them that it was temporary, and then they made me look like a fool. Um, um, so there's very little, I mean, it's interesting, I, we, we're all speculating a little about this because we have a caricature example 
image in our mind bears the Britannia Unchained Conservative crew, almost all of whom are ne nearly in the cabinet or almost there, who do not believe in regulation, who don't think regulation is a great thing and think actually the problems we might now be facing is we just didn't get enough market. And then there was the more thoughtful bunch. Um, Greg Clark de led these, I think, and he was advised by a really interesting guy called Tony Curzon Price in this space, who was saying actually you need precisely what you were talking about, a new regulation to um, take into account several things. The change in delivery, particularly using IT and digital and so forth. The fact that we now understand much more about behavioural economics. These are all areas where the Conservatives were famously experimenting their thinking about 10 years ago, that all, the, all the nudge stuff. But on the whole, it's, it's just not an area that they regard as politically salient, I think. I mean, so, so there's a big details to follow part there, I would say. I mean, because also nobody knows how to say we're going to make regulation better a politically credible sounding thing. What does it mean? You're, you're going to shout harder at the regulators, which seems to have been the technique for the last couple of years. They've got to have something better than just embarrassing regulators in public to try and be meaner to companies. They need to have a, an underlying theoretical basis, and they had one in the 80s, for good or ill, and I'm not really sure they've got a stable one now. Theresa May tried to produce one. It didn't stick. Just on that point, is the issue here that regulators aren't doing the best job they could within their current remit, or is the remit actually in need of change? It's really interesting, this, because I, I remember speaking to people in the wake of the, the CMA uh, argument within itself about the energy price cap. It was a split opinion, and the man who did, dissented is now in charge of Ofgem. Um, and some of them said, we are t we're told strictly that so long as you have competition working, the consumer's fine. In other words, enough companies coming in and out, it's easy enough to switch or something, consumers will find the right price. At least they've got the ability to, and it's fine. And now that with talks about needing to change their remit, as you imply, saying take into account consumers more, it's, there's a recognition that consumers are human beings, will not always find themselves interacting with that in a way that suits them, and they'll be vulnerable consumers who suffer. So I think... The, the, the vehicle that uh, a lot of centre-right politicians will be most comfortable with is precisely that. Can we change the strategic remit so it's still arm's length, but we've made it very clear that the consumer wasn't taken into account enough? Great. Could I come in there? Because I think there's a real need to get regulation to focus on outcomes, not on process. And it's too much of regulation. It started quite high level, but it's increasingly got more and more detailed and detailed in terms of delivering sort of X kilometers of uh, pipes, X kilometers of wire, rather than saying actually what we need to deliver are good social and environmental, out environmental outcomes for these services. And I think that's sort of drawing back, focusing on outcomes, focusing on the long term, and thinking about the incentives and the behaviours that utility companies need to exhibit and need to follow through on, and how you get the right culture to deliver on those is absolutely key. So we've gone through a situation where we've had companies which were by and large originally sort of led by engineers to sort of an era when sort of the accountants took over. Now we need to have a much more diverse range of skills around the board table to get the right behaviours in place so that people can make decisions about how you trade off these different interests um, and know how to talk to politicians, how to talk to communities about the sorts of changes we need to see. Great. So now it's the opportunity for all of you to um, ask your questions to the panel. Who would like to kick us off? Um, okay, we'll go lady there. And we'll take one question over there together. I have well. to declare an interest. I'm doing a podcast series. I'm a broadcast journalist with Affinity Water on saving water. 
because the regulators were asking the 32 water companies to save water. But even Fergal Sharkey, who's campaigning on the chalk streams being low, is questioning why we should, as consumers, complain about a hosepipe ban. And perhaps others are asking why, as consumers, we should be able to buy a cut-price large swimming pool and fill it up. So it's not really about pricing. Water is cheaper than our Sky subscription. And we have the best water quality in Europe. But does the argument over ownership model cloud out the need to change consumer behaviours? Thank you. Hi, uh, Sean Spears, Green Alliance. Uh, James, I can see all sorts of attractions for nationalisation. I just, I just wonder, in, in the context of the climate crisis and the need for really quite urgent action, what, we're hosting the COP next year, one year to get on track for net zero. We all know that the longer you leave action, the, the harder it gets. And there's all sorts of stuff that needs to be done in terms of uh, more investment in renewables, less in fossil fuels, um, getting the EV network up and running, sort of whole home storage in, in individual houses, investing in future research, future energy sources, uh, hydrogen, heat, etc., etc. To do all that, um, and at the same time have a kind of massive parliamentary battle with presumably not a landslide Labour government. I don't think anybody's anticipating sort of Attlee-style or Blair-style majority. Huge parliamentary battles, kind of investment strike by the private sector as they worry about investing in all the stuff we need. Is, is, this, the, is, is this not potentially a distraction in terms of achieving the kind of huge uh, progress we need to make very, very quickly uh, towards decarbonisation? James, do you want to stop? Okay, I should say this earlier. Of course, I'm speaking in a personal uh, capacity. I wouldn't take anything I say as uh, you know, what Labour is or is not going to do. But my, I, think that, I think that's a very, I think it's an absolutely critical point you raise. Right? The, 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 the main challenge here is the main challenge here is actually we have so many main challenges. There is a big list of things that need to be done. I would say, particularly after the last ten years, the most pressing one, one that requires right now immediate action, looks like ending various bits of austerity and doing that as rapidly as possible. I do not want, and I really would not want to continue from next week having to see quite so much homelessness in London, for example. There are immediate things you can do that require spending rapidly to make that happen. The challenge of decarbonisation in particular and reducing the kind of environmental, uh, the environmental damage that we're causing is, is by its nature, somewhat longer term than a parliamentary term, but not so long term. I, mean, I, I do think 2050 has to be brought back towards the kind of uh, target date that Labour's talking about. And that's the point at which, pri which prioritisation uh, really becomes the, the pressing political issue. Now, I do think that if you want some parts of the energy system to rapidly decarbonise, different kinds of ownership are the way to do it. You know, if you want lots of onshore winds to be built quite rapidly, a quick way to do it is give people ownership over the wind farms you're building. And that's a way to start to knock things out. Similarly uh, with, with uh, solar panels, similarly with other sort of more distributed forms of generation. These things you can do quite rapidly. The longer term stuff, the target setting right at the top about where you want to get to across the entire energy system, I think has to be part of a conversation about the ownership of that system. But that is a longer term process of necessity. It's not necessarily going to be a quick thing to just go, okay, write a bill and then suddenly it's all under, under public ownership. I don't think that's how it's going to work. And if you're dealing with a, a complex energy system with complicated demands and what you want to get out of it around decarbonisation, then that is going to be a, a slower process. But at least some of this can and should be done uh, rapidly and has to be done rapidly as possible. I mean, this is the nature of a, a carbon budget. You want to front load as much of the action as you can. And, and that, I think, is, is clear from the Labour manifesto that that's what they intend. Okay. Uh, 
Giles, do you have any thoughts on that, having obviously tried to get things done in government? Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I mean, a tangential one. I mean, thanks to um, this event, me looking up on some of James's really interesting work, I was looking up this Danish cooperative model, and it is an interesting one that we would have loved to have found an effective way of doing in government. The idea, you sit there with the inconvenience of the onshore wind farm, you don't have the benefit, but if you internalise it, then uh, people will go along with it. And in a way, it's a, it's a curiously free market sort of idea. Um, and, I, and it reminded me, though, of somewhere where we failed, where I think I deserve a small medal for finding a number in Labour's manifesto that's much too small, which is <laughs> £250 billion to upgrade the housing stock, which is arguably the biggest and most important thing we need to do to deal with our carbon contribution. And it's a really tricky one. And it points an embarrassing finger at a big failure of the coalition government, which was to try to do it with atomised market incentives, using something called the Green Deal, long before AOC grabbed that phrase. And it was meant to get, you have a, you get a, a loan off the government and you use it to put in insulation, and actually it comes off your bills, so net-net you end up a winner. Now, a free market, a pure free market view will say everyone should do this, and people didn't like it at all. They hate debt. They hate debt that's attached to their house. And so I think this is a really interesting area which might prove um, a good test case for whether different modes of ownership are going to do the job here because we need to somehow get into 25 million houses and get 25 million householders to do something very, very inconvenient. And the last time we did something like this was actually the con conversion from coal gas to natural gas in the 70s. And here, speaking very much against my, my picture, it was done in a growth a very grossly statist way. Apparently they sent in the army, you know. You, the, the old ladies wouldn't come out of their house, they send in a man with a gun, and they, out they come and they put in new pipes. Uh, but that was the only way to do it. Um, now the question, we are going to need to make virtually every house in this country um, much better standards, and it costs more than 10 grand each, probably 30 or 40, so we're talking almost a trillion pounds. That's going to take all sorts of innovation. Sharon, do you want to pick up on the, the point made about water and changing consumer behaviour? Well, I, th I think that's absolutely spot on because a lot of the discussion around nationalisation um, and what needs to be done to uh, address the climate emergency comes from the supply side. Now, the supply side solutions are clearly critical and they're clearly critical when you need to do things at scale and pace and things like carbon taxes, etc., need to be considered as well as building standards um, and appliance standards. But I think unless you also get people to do their bit and to understand what role that they can play in, deliver, uh, in living sort of more sustainable lifestyles, um, we're going to miss a trick. And that applies to the water sector clearly in terms of reducing usage, but also not flushing horrible things down the loo that shouldn't go down the loo and putting fat soil and greases and your turkey oil down the sink on Christmas Day. But also it goes in terms of uh, the energy sector, the rail sector, um, and when you have networks in terms of using the demand side to get greater flexibility um, to reduce peak usage and really sort of flatten peak usage. So getting that balance right between the supply side and the demand side is crucial. But I think what this debate says to me is what you need in the future is a greater diversity of solutions um, because we don't know what the best models are going to be in order to deliver net zero going forward. We know we need bits of the state to act. We know we need regulators to change. We know we need good companies to make the most of the scarce resources that they've got. But all sides need to sort of talk together and to fit together. And for that to happen, we need to ensure that governance, rather than focusing on the interests of whether it's 
the party in power or their group of shareholders. We need governance to really look for an alignment of common interests because these sectors are so important, unless we can identify what our common interests are, um, we're not going to be able to sort of deliver social and environmental outcomes. Great. Okay, we've got definitely one question down here, and then we'll take one at the back and one there. Uh, sorry, do you mind using the microphone just behind you? Yeah, at the turn of the 90s, just as we were getting into privatization, the world's great economists rounded up under William Baumol, lead master thinker about contestable markets and, and, and spent a lot of time on this issue and they concluded they could not tell whether there was a general answer about whether nationalized or privatized industries were more or less efficient <laughs> despite all their efforts. Um, but what they could tell was that the thing that made an enormous, and they concluded that actually whether you nationalized or not was going to be a political issue fought out on the sort of discussion we've just been hearing. But that how well those industries then performed was crucially dependent on, I think it was seven factors of how you did it rather than whether you did it. Mm -hmm. And that some of those factors rolled over into regulation too. And one, if I'm just going to challenge the panel here, is it, it, the number one fact, well, the number two, two, top two factors are one, what are the government's objectives for this industry and how are they going to be communicated and stuck in place? And secondly, what is the relation between that and how they finance and fund it? Because if you let the workers decide to pay, does the Treasury have to pick up the bill? Um, those sorts of issues. And those are the two things which they kind of said, unless you got those right on regulatory or nationalization, you, you were stuck. Sorry about that. Right, next. There was one question at the back, and then we'll come to the question here as well. I'm Andrew Schein from the Behavioral Insights team. But I actually worked at Bulb in 2017. We were an energy supplier startup. And I remember when Labor's Manifesto became public, we sort of said, well, it's more about the natural monopoly utilities. It's not about the competitive supply utilities. My first question is, was that right? <laughs> and the, the second question I have is whether you see a, a difference, um, because it was brought up at the beginning of the talk, but it's sort of been left to the side um, in the second half, whether you see a difference in the case and the pros and cons for nationalization in the competitive supply sort of areas versus the natural monopolies. Great. And the third question, just in the middle here. Uh, Robert Morland, uh, I think in the context of this discussion, I'm on the regional board of the Canal and River Trust, which, of course, is a transfer from the public sector during the a David Cameron government and I should also declare my bias which is I'm a former president of Gloucester Conservative Association um, and my question is probably relates to my age in the sense that what of course I recall from the Attlee government on all the way through to the 1980s how unpopular nationalization was it was a big plus for the Conservatives to use in the all general elections since then. And what I find interesting is you're only talking about really a couple of the issues of the ones that happened uh, in the 80s. And indeed, if I was to say, to remind people, that the telephone was not only nationalized, had a monopoly in which you were not allowed to buy any of the equipment from anything 
but the post office, it was run by the post office, anybody under 55 usually looks at me with disbelief. So there is a very big change. And my real question here is that I suspect, you know, if you went back into nationalisation, say of the railways, um, you would still find the public complaining in the same way and saying it's not like what it was before under GWR because the trains are still late on when I want to go. Um, so James, perhaps we could start on that one. I guess there are sort of two points here. One is, should we look back to the period of nationalisation as a lesson for what would happen next? But also, I guess there's an issue there about do ministers want to have the problems with all of these industries visited on them in letters in their post bag? Okay, that's... Um no, I think those two sort of tie together, actually, in terms of, of like where, when this is when is public ownership a good idea and when it isn't. Now, there's an EC 101 answer to that, which is already mentioned, which is when you have a natural monopoly, there is quite a solid case uh, for, for having some form of, of public ownership. This is this is a kind of entirely regulatory, market-free model of it. But there is also, I think, a, a reasonable case for saying, look, particularly with consumer-facing, like where there is an element of consumer choice, there is a desire for competition, where there is a sort of need for it you're not necessarily going to say here is a big nationalised monopoly and it will supply the thing as well as a, as a, as a private sector could. It's, it's a hard to, to make the case at that point. The example of BT is an interesting one. The example of BT is an interesting one because obviously there is a proposal to deliver full fibre broadband and to do it under public ownership in the Labour manifesto. It's an interesting one partly because BT already had plans to roll out full fibre broadband shortly before being privatised in the 1990s. It was probably shelved because it's a big, expensive, long-term programme. This wasn't really considered uh, ideal for setting up con conditions for future competition, the provision of telecommunications by the government at the time. It's quite an interesting story there that BT had done a great deal of the research. They had their own research labs and the rest of it. They could do that partly because of their, uh, their monopoly status at the time. But the delivery of broadband itself could reasonably be done by uh, a public sector supply because at this point in time we have a very low rate of full fibre rollouts in this country. So about 8-10% of, of households have it. Certainly far behind some other uh, countries, even in Europe. I mean, Spain is 89%, Portugal is some, something similar. Uh, you go to Japan, South Korea, obviously up to, to 100% or very, very near 100% coverage. And you can roll that out there because you're providing uh, an essential infrastructure upon which you can then have lots of markets with lots and lots of people doing lots of different things. And I think if we have a, a model in our heads in the economy that looks like that, where large parts of essential infrastructure provided through a model like this, on which you can then have lots of competition, small businesses and large businesses and whatever else is going on, then that, I think, is roughly the model economy you're getting to. I mean, really, this is a mixed economy that I'm describing at this point in time. This isn't something where the state is just there uh, across all and sundry. Uh, and that, I think, is, is roughly, you know, if you look at what the manifesto describes, that's the kind of world that you're getting to at this point. Sharon, do you want to pick up on any of those points? And the point about objectives uh, needing to be clarified uh, and similarly around investment finance, absolutely. Um, I think it goes to the discussion I, I was trying to get earlier on about the need to focus on outcomes and what, what you're actually trying to achieve, but then being able to communicate that and explain why you're making the decisions you are is really key. I think the point about investment's really interesting because not all investors are the same, just like not all um, sort of companies are the same. Uh, there's a world of difference between sort of in perpetuity investors. Uh, so many of the pension funds who are universal owners, they own assets across the economy, and they're deeply and increasingly interested in what they call the ESG factors, the environmental, social and governance factors. 
uh, getting the right sort of capital aligned with the right sort of businesses, I think, is a really important area of focus. So if you can get patient capital to support and invest in long-term <coughs> assets, uh, rather than people who want to make a quick buck and then sort of take the money out of the country, uh, that's got to be a positive thing. And we know that there's a massive growth in the green bond market and sort of green investment vehicles. So can we get a better alignment of investors with some of these industries? I think the point about sort of differences between monopoly and supply markets is, a, is clearly a very good one. But I think it's... It's not black and white there, and I think we're getting more sort of hybridization of different types of business models. And there's a recognition that if you're a monopoly, you might be able to perform what might be called a, a public purpose platform function that other companies can then work off. So looking at sort of this in black and white sort of binary terms, I think doesn't sort of open up the full range of possibilities that we need in terms of different business models going forward and how we can get a wider range of more diverse business models which are going to give us a more resilient future when we look at our utilities. Charles, do you want to? Uh, I thought it was a really interesting observation about the seven factors and, and the means of financing. Just to make a slightly polemical point, um, one of the caricatures you get within government is that finance is all flighty in short term and sort of in one day, out the next. And whereas government is the obverse, it's the sort of long-term <laughs> steward and is always looking far out. Nobody who's been in government, or I would say in business, would think that is actually the case. You have politicians who've got an average lifetime in government of a couple of years and move portfolios all the time, but no one here can name all the DCMS secretaries of state of the last six or seven years. And actually, it's also the opposite for finance. I think a lot of finance is in this stuff because they want a long-term stable investment. And where the, the, the standard caricature is that you can, you can either have voice or exit in the financial sector. So if you don't like your asset, you can just sell it and go and get another one. These guys are actually voice. They are interested in speaking to the asset owners and being proper stewards. And we pass endless sort of whinging laws in this country to try and get people to act like stewards. I think this is why I think we've got to be careful about what we might lose if we don't have these kind of long-term holders of these assets because they do genuinely engage with the ownership of it. And therefore, if you want someone who will appreciate those objectives and match it to the means of financing, I think it's a more stable place to look for it in the <laughs> private sector. But you're right that we might not have actually just done that work correctly. But I still think once we've done it correctly, it might be, it sounds contradictory, but more stable in the private sector than it would be within government. Um, yes, I, the other, I, Andrew's point about um, will they, do they want to go to supply. For me, you can tell what a geek I am. The biggest shock of the Labour manifesto was them saying energy supply needs to come in because that strikes me as an area where competition has worked really quite well. The, the, the energy companies I've used that are new entrants have grown enormously to 30% of the market from nothing, and they are providing far better service. Um, they're making the most of IT, they're making the most of behavioral dynamics. They will be the ones I trust to move to the new world of smart electricity and so forth. And, um, and, and they're often much more efficient in terms of workforce per number of customers. So I'm amazed that the state would want to go anywhere near energy supply. James, just before we go back to the final um, set of questions, there are a couple of points there that you might want to pick up on. So one is discussion about energy supply, because I think the Labour proposal is to nationalise the big six and to allow the other competitor companies to remain in the market. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the, uh, but also on this question about um, 
politics and government and short-term thinking mm -hmm. in government. So why would a Labour government be any less short-termist and prone to <coughs> the problem that there was in the past of actually underinvestment in public utilities precisely because of that short-term political imperative? No, no, I think, I think that's, a, that's a well-taken point with the, the sort of history of the last, well, really 60, 70 years or so, that the underinvestment is, is a problem across the, the entirety of the economy, including the, the public sector. Uh, and it, it emerges in different forms, whether you're in the public or the private sector over that period of time, but, it, but it's clearly there, and clearly some of it is this sort of backwards and forwards on uh, whether something should be in government, uh, government hands or not. I mean, there are classic cases, steel is one, sugar, I think, is another one that, that gets kicked around a bit, at least in the sort of late 40s, early 50s. So, so there is an issue of stability and the stability of governance over time. And I think part of that it gets you into the other bit of the Labour manifesto, which gets less attention, at least in the sense of, because it's not like, you know, here's your big on-the-doorstep conversation to have, to, to use a bit of a cliche. But it is important, which is the, the sort of institutional changes uh, that, that it talks about, in particular, uh, things like getting to the Treasury and saying the current Green Book rules, which describe how the Treasury basically makes its investment decisions, need revising, particularly uh, in light of the challenges of you know, investment over the long term for the environment, but also, I'd say, the challenges of getting more investment from you know, stopping clustering quite so much in London uh, and getting it into the rest of the country. There's a very good paper by uh, Diane Coyle and her co-authors on the sort of institutional bias of the Treasury towards landing and public investment towards London, the South East, and, and not so much in the rest of the country. So that's a rewriting the rules issue. It's, it's not like a, a doorstep issue, but it is like a critical part of trying to get government to function differently o over a long period of time. And that should be something. If you're talking about decarbonisation, this is a 10-year programme. That is longer than, than a lifetime, at least 10 years, uh, a lifetime of a single government. So I think it's important to try and get those institutional uh, changes in place to say that this is what we want to do. These are our big social goals we want to last uh, over a long period of time uh, and to get those in place as quickly as possible. Um, I think we are now running very... Oh, gosh, there are several hands. OK, I'm going to take two very quick final questions and then I'll give the panellists the chance to respond to those and or give closing remarks as well. So, OK, I'm going to go here because you definitely had your hand up before. <laughs> and not go to the middle of the back as well. Uh, I hope this is a quick answer, but I'm not guaranteed. Um, Mike Connolly from Abelio Group. Um, do you think the renationalisation agenda is dependent on Brexit? Ooh. OK, and middle of the back. <laughs> OK, th thank you. Richard Parker from uh, Gowling, a law firm. Um, really interesting discussion. Uh, no one's really tackled the issue of what happens in the case of failure in nationalised industries. I'm just interested, perhaps James could say a bit about how a prospective Labour government might deal with that, uh, that issue. Great. Um, so I don't want to go to, well, I've gone to James first because I guess that's the way the questions have gone, but I won't go to him first. I will let you uh, come to the, this question last. I'll start with Giles. Um, I think we've managed to go a whole hour without mentioning the B word, but thank you very much for bringing it up. <laughs> Um, one glib point, I could imagine whole industries being nationalised and reprivatised before Brexit's even got moved through <laughs> the next phase. So, dependent on its actual delivery, I, I don't think so. The standard narrative in government was we will be able to think about other things, uh, which, which mischaracterises the way governments normally act. They can think about all these things at once. It's the lobby correspondence who can only think about one thing at a time. So... Um, I do think that there's been a very interesting fiscal period where we're acting like we're unconstrained right now. Whoever comes in is going to find they have constraints and therefore have to make choices. And if the Brexit that is pursued isn't good, 
and that hurts the fiscal situation, that prioritisation will become even harder. So to that degree, I think the answer to your question is yes. Sharon, do you have any final thoughts or response to the comments? Uh, well, the response, I think the question about um, what happens in the case of failure is a really good question. What we do know is that we're going to need innovation to deliver net zero fairly and affordably. Governments don't like taking risks in some of these areas, and they don't like taking risks when you're dealing with critical infrastructure. So I think if, every, if you had a very sort of binary nationalisation process um, without the multiplicity that you were talking about earlier in terms of different forms, I think that would discourage people from taking risks, and I think that would put up costs um, and make us more fragile as a system going forward. James. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Quickly. What, what happens in the case of failure? Uh, that, that's uh, got it. It's an election going on, so you're tempted to give the very political answer, which is, of course, there won't be any failures uh, uh, at that point. But, but the slightly more serious one is, is that what happens at the minute in the case of failures for things that we think are a priority service is that it starts to default back to government having to step in. So, so if you've removed that layer of complication, which is if this fails, the government steps in anyway. I mean, banking's like an obvious sort of 2008 version of this. Then, at least in theory, it's easier to see when the failures might happen. This is the point about transparency and accountability and the rest of it. So at the very least, you're aware of what is going wrong rather quicker than if there's the opacity. And then this thing still collapses, and then the government has to step in anyway. That, that strikes me as not a good way to deal uh, with failure in the first instance. And potentially, you've got a better way of understanding what a failure might look like if there's greater transparency and accountability and, and some form of public ownership there. Is this dependent on Brexit? The, the, that, you can either give a very sort of short answer to that, which is no, uh, or you can take it in, in probably three different ways, all of which I was, I was running around in my head. And one of them is, I thought maybe it was a question about state aid and that sort of thing. This, yeah, yeah, I thought that was we can. As, as far as we can tell, not really, right? There's, there's a lot of laxity around state aid and what, what you can do with it. The real challenge with state aid, and I say this as a, somewhat from a sins, a former Treasury official, the real challenge with state aid is what the Treasury thinks about state aid rather more than what the Commission thinks about state aid, right? That the Treasury thinks that this is very, very big and very, very important and you must always massively overcompensate relative to anything you could possibly ever do ever. That's how they think about it. The Commission, in practice, as you can see from the rest of the, the continent, takes a, a rather different view. Now, we don't know where Brexit's going to end up. We don't know what state aid rules may or may not be, be knocking around at that point. But other things being equal, this, this isn't a problem for, for Labour's current programme. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Um, I think we've had a great discussion of perhaps some common areas of agreement on what the problems are, and I think a nice highlighting of the fact that we need to think not just about the current and past problems, but also the issues that are facing these industries going forward as well when we think about any solution. Um, I think there is disagreement about what the right prescription is for this problem, but hopefully this is an area that will continue to get attention and debate beyond the election as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>